The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. Welcome to the Elk Talk podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson, presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk doing it's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk's being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes, but if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. (laughs) Did we hit the record button? I forgot to hit the record (laughs) button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <clears throat> What's that, Donnie? I don't like talking down on people. Corey, oh, that, that's mic. a dad joke right there. That's... Folks, Donnie <laughs> and Corey are here in my studio in Bozeman, and Donnie's already laying down the dad jokes. Oh, no. It's... I adjusted his microphone so it wasn't right directly in front of his mouth, moved it down. He's like, I don't like talking down on people. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Montana, guys. Thanks. <clears throat> How was the drive up yesterday? It was good. Yeah? Yeah. I broke mine up into stages. I did some uh, elk scouting on the drive, so I started on Wednesday. It took three days to get here. Really? Yeah. Huh. You went down through Wyoming and... Uh, I just, I hit Texas and Wyoming, Oklahoma, all the places that I'm going to be hunting elk this year. And Dang. <laughs> I need to get with the program. I haven't done anything this year. Yeah. I've been doing a bunch of e-scouting. That's it. Now I've got to go back to the drawing board, though, because I found some country that's very appealing that I hadn't found really? before. Huh. Donnie knew about it. He just wasn't telling you. Yeah, exactly. I sent him a picture of the one motorcycle trail, and I said, oh, I found a trail for Donnie. <laughs> yeah. It looked like they had a rock concert there. Really? <laughs> yeah. There was nothing but rocks. Hmm. It looked like a motorcycle fell down the side of the mountain. Really? And he said it was a motorcycle trail. Yeah. Well, that, that that sounds like Donnie's style right there. I heard yeah. about you going over the handlebars once. and I heard about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't remember it. The, the uh, PTSD <clears throat> from yeah. riding yeah. it. Do, do you wear a helmet when you ride one of those? Yes, I do. You do? Yes. You were telling me how fast you drive, Donnie. Do you wear a helmet when you drive your truck? No, I don't. And he doesn't drive a motorcycle nearly as fast as no. a truck. <laughs> Thank goodness. Oh, well, my crew, they'll sit over there in the passenger seat, and I can tell they're getting impatient because they lean over and they look at how fast we're going. <laughs> and then they just kind of lean back like, 
Because, uh, you know, if the speed limit's 65, I do like 63, 64. If the speed limit's 70, I'll crank it up to like 66. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's why my vehicles last so long. If you saw my crew in their vehicles, they could have a, a six-month-old vehicle and they'd look like it. Had, they'd bought it from a junkyard. <laughs> yeah, you might as well use it. Yeah. But Donnie said, if it goes that fast, you might as well get everything you got out yeah, of it. Yeah, what was that you were telling me, Donnie? You, you bought a whole vehicle, so you plan to use every part of it? Or yeah, I bought a V8. I'm going to use all eight cylinders. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm not riding with you. <laughs> and I'm sure you're thinking, good, because I'm not riding with you either. <laughs> Don't put your thumb out, and I won't pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if ever I'm hitchhiking and Donnie pulls over, I'm like, no, I don't need to ride that bad. No. Yeah. Just keep on going. So the reason I drive so slow is the very first time I ever drove a vehicle. I, I, I was 14 years old. I'd never driven a vehicle. My dad's GMC breaks down out on the logging yard, out at the log, at, on, on the landing. He's like, hey, you got to come with me. We're going to bring the new truck out. Uh, and if, once I get the old GMC going, I'll let you drive the new truck. And I'll Because the new truck was an automatic and the other one was a standard. Well, my buddy Dwayne was with, and we get everything fixed, and we're driving back into town. I'd never, I didn't know what the heck to do. You know, I'm pushing, and oh, boy, we really go, and <laughs> slamming on the brakes. I, you know, I didn't know you just touched the brakes. Well, and this is where you guys are going to laugh. This is like about this time of year, and they just re-graveled this main county road. And so there's really soft gravel over on the shoulders, and Dwayne is like, there's a grouse. Get him. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, this 350 V8. Man, I just, you know, I'm trying to keep it between the ditches while it started getting out of hand. Uh, as I was easing over to the shoulder thinking I was going to scare that grouse, it's that soft gravel started sucking me in, and I locked up the brakes. And it, that tire dug in, and we rolled down the road for quite a ways. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the very first time I ever drove a vehicle, I rolled my dad's truck. Yeah. And somehow we did not get hurt. Dwayne got a little cut on his forehead. And then here comes one of the local ladies driving down the county road, and we're in the middle of the road. Oh, and my dad's dog was in the back, too. Oh, wow. When the dog showed up at home and I wasn't there, my dad's like, what the? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going on here? So uh, this lady gave us a ride into town, told my dad, I was not, I was not a number one son after that. Yeah, I bet. But then when we got back into town, the lady he was living with at the time, Marilyn, she chewed him out. What are you doing letting a 14-year-old drive your brand new truck? He's never driven a truck before. How's he supposed to know what he's doing? <laughs> and really, I didn't. You know, how how in the world did you grow up in Minnesota in a logging family and you'd never driven a truck when you were 14? Because my dad, up until that truck, he won. He would not, this was the first time he would ever let me practice in that truck. Because he needed you to yeah. help him. And his other truck was a 69 GMC with four on the floor that it's like uh, this kid, you know, I, he can't even reach a clutch. <laughs> <laughs> so I, he, we were, what was the legal age for driving? 16. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I had just turned 
14 or I was getting ready to turn. I think I was getting ready to turn 14. I was 13. Yeah. So I was 15. You know, those, so in Ely, Nevada, Ely, Nevada. Oh yeah. I've been there. So, you know, those propane trucks that, that's called a bobtail mm-hmm. comes out, has the big propane tank on the back, yeah. fills up your propane at the house. Yeah. I was driving those at 15 Whoa. on the weekends because my dad was a, propane plant manager and weekend calls they'd need to go have somebody get <laughs> filled up and it was saturday and dad would send me to do the stuff on the weekends so I was driving those things around when i was just a young kid wow I did roll, and nobody got blown up i did want to roll one of those no uh-uh. <laughs> i took driver's ed when i was 13 really yeah well, in Idaho, it's... Yeah, I was the last class in Idaho in our county that got driver's license at age 14. Really? I I didn't get that kind of training. I, uh, but then here's the thing. We kind of gather ourselves up, and there's, you know, a chainsaw laying over here, and there's a pickaxe <laughs> over here, and all the, the mixed gas and oil and everything. I mean, there's diesel fuel. Because my dad in the back of a truck, he had yeah. a little bit of everything. It's just scattered all over. The dog is gone. I can't find the dog. And I tell Dwayne, let's tell him we tried to avoid a deer. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, our that's story. It. So we go up there, and my dad's like, well, where are these deer tracks? I'm mealy-mouthing. No, <laughs> well, he did, I think he just jumped the whole road at one time because there wasn't a deer track anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I found out from that is two thir- Dwayne was 12, I was 13. Uh, you're never going to keep your story straight. No. Within about a month, my dad's like, hey, you're lying to me. Oh, it, only, it took him a month? Yeah. Wow. I, well, I think it took him about three minutes. But He waited a month. He waited a month <laughs> to see. I think he's given me time to see if I was going to come clean. Yeah, to see how many times your story changed. Yeah. And like, yeah, there were no deer. It's funny that that story, when I got out of that, that experience led you to not drive fast nowadays. Correct. But you still go after the grouse. Yeah. With no no hesitation, no hesitation that yeah. if I do this, I may cause injury. I may get in an accident, and the grouse was the the root of the entire yes. ordeal. The, like if, so you if, could you could drive fast if you just quit chasing grouse. Well, if that grouse had not walked out on the shoulder of that road, yes, I probably would not have learned that lesson, and yeah. I'd be driving like Donnie. And you probably, you're probably, you have a vendetta against grouse now because of that. That is why you are so passionate well, about chasing grouse. It might be the number of roadkill grouse I've eaten would surprise people. <laughs> not, not of my own roadkill. That's the title of this episode. Yeah, the but, number of roadkill grouse I've eaten. Yeah, but I. I can be driving down a road and to see a dead grouse and I'll know, you know, real quickly, uh, it's been here too long or, you know. First, first bite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you open it up, you kind of know. It's yeah. like, Ugh. smells good. I, I know that count towards your bag limit, I've, but I've never picked up more than a limited grouse. Oh, is it legal to pick up roadkill? In Montana it is yeah, well, for big game now. Someone hit a deer out by my house yesterday. If I wasn't in a hurry, I would have. 
would have went online and you get, I think it's called the salvage permit. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Idaho's legal now too to, to do collect that. A, I had uh, two calf elk coming back from spring break last year at mm. two in the morning. And yeah. same thing. It's like, I'm too tired. It's, yeah. but uh, I know the guy, local guy emailed me and he's like, hey, I heard you hit a couple elk. We're the ones that picked them up at six oh. o'clock in the morning. <laughs> they were great. And I'm like, yeah. oh, they had to have been great. They were young. Yeah. I don't know what the rule was in Utah, but when we were in Utah last month, uh, that motorcycle hit that elk when we went by that night. Is that what it was? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much damage a motorcycle would do to an elk, but I know how much damage an elk would do to a motorcycle. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That was pretty ugly driving past there. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't want to rubberneck too hard, but I'm like, well, I can't do a salvage thing because I'm flying out in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Go down to the, the Marriott and be packing quarters up the stairs at the Marriott. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I bet you somebody, after hearing what we just said, is going to tell us about the time they processed an animal in their hotel room. That's uh, happened quite often. <laughs> <laughs> we, we may or may not have uh, left a mess in a bathtub in Alaska yeah. a couple seasons ago. <clears throat> I'd yeah. heard that story, so that's why I was going to see if you guys were going to come clean or if you're just like a 13-year-old. What are the statute of limitations on stuff like that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, I guess maybe we'll call this you know, the, the roadkill edition. Alaska, you know, it's it's an area where it's not like you just drive there and throw your meat in a cooler and drive back home. So right. you've got to, they, you know, there's processing places for fish yeah. and everything, but big game, you're yeah. kind of left to, you fly out in a little plane and they drop you off at the dock and they're like, your hotel's that way and here's your, here's yep. your carcass. Yeah. It's like, so next time you do that, you call Marcus Hockett. He went and signed up to be an authorized shipper with Alaska Air. Really? Because he's going on a moose hunt this year. And this is to Marcus's full credit. Like, he's Mr. Frugality. Yeah. He's like, well, there's this trucking company that if you get everything processed up there and whatever, they'll truck it down to the lower 48 but you got to pay in advance you're buying a slot so whether you get one or not you're paying he's like well i'll just go through all the paperwork and everything and if i go to an alaska airline terminal all the all of their terminals or all their whatever you know fixed bases have freezers yeah they will send it down as cargo and they'll keep it in their freezer here in bozeman until he goes and picks it up. The Elk Talk podcast has been sponsored from the beginning by our friends at GoHunt. And you may think of them about draw odds and all the other information that we use and we talk about. But the one thing a lot of people don't know is they have the best Western hunter gear shop anywhere. So if you're interested in your buying gear and you want to get a discount on regular priced items out on their gear shop, go out to GoHunt.com. And go to the shop, and when you do, use promo code ELKTALK when you check out, and you're going to save quite a bit of money on all those regular priced items. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that 
by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTOCK to save on your next order. ELKTOCK podcast is also brought to you by the University of Elk Hunting. The University of Elk Hunting was founded by Corey Jacobson. It is now part of the suite of courses out there at OutdoorClass.com. So if you want to sign up for the University of Elk Hunting and save some money, go out to OutdoorClass.com and use Elk Talk as your promo code, and you'll get 20% off. But more importantly, you're going to get the University of Elk Hunting. You're going to get other courses from Outdoor Class taught by Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, John Barklow, Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, and on and on and on. There you have it. OutdoorClass.com will get you the University of Elk Hunting. Just make sure you use promo code ELKTALK and save 20%. So, wow. <clears throat> next time you go to Alaska, maybe you won't have to quite make such a mess in a hotel room because Marcus might be nice enough to let you be his authorized shipper. And that's anywhere that Alaska flies. I believe so. Hmm. Or at least in Bozeman. Uh, very so, cool. Yeah. I can't remember what it cost. But it's a lot less expensive than shipping or yeah. doing anything else. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me that? I, I brought a bear back in May. He's like, well, I hadn't done the paperwork by then. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So there you go. Next Man. time you guys do Alaska elk, if there is a next time. I was just plan. there three <clears throat> weeks ago. Yeah. On the island. Oh, really? Yeah. You got off the, the, well, the cruise ship? Well, not exactly. We, uh, we cruised Nearby. right by it. Yeah. yeah. Huh. You going to do that again, Donnie? Um, not this year. <laughs> <laughs> not until you get a little younger, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were doing the, uh, Randy and I were at the Utah Total Archery Challenge doing a RMEF deal there. and Q&A. Yeah, Randy volunteered to buy plane tickets for anyone who wanted to go, because I said the only way I'd go back is if I had four young guys who were strong and would pack elk. Yeah. And he said, I bet we can get volunteers right here. I'll buy plane tickets. Is anybody willing to go? And what do we have? 10 or 12 people that yeah, raised their, their hands and said, I'll yeah. go do it. And yeah. I was like, Randy? Hey, Corey, stop this. Uh, no, Corey's out there talking like, oh, I'd love to do it again if I had four packers with me. I'd I'm have like, to hand select them. There would be an interview process. Yeah. They would have to stand out in 34 degree weather while I sprayed a hose on them for about three hours straight. And yeah. Well, you apply again next year and I'll keep my promise that I'll buy the airline tickets for the four packers that you come up with. We'll see. I detect a little backpedaling there, don't you, Donnie? Yeah. I don't know. When we went when we went by the island on the cruise ship, I'm looking up there going, Man, that's something up there is calling my name. I don't know what it is. Huh. It was a sunny day, that's why it was. It was absolutely a sunny day. It wasn't raining four inches that day. Yeah. Hmm. I thought maybe we'd go like the last three days of August and hunt blacktail <clears> and then when the elk season opened September 1st, we'd switch over to hunt elk and yeah. just make a mixed bag trip out of it. Yeah. Well, there was an old boy in my town. Anytime you'd ask him to do something that didn't sound like any fun, he'll say, I'll do that when I get a little younger. Call me in two years. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things. That, yeah. I'm not yeah. getting any younger. <clears throat> no. That, that trip didn't help my aging process either. Yeah. So you guys are in town because, Corey, you got a film at the Sitka headquarters. 
this afternoon. I'm supposed to introduce you. It'd be nice if you told me what I'm supposed to introduce. I but, have no idea. Okay. I'm not in charge of this event. I was just told to show up show and up, talk about elk hunting. Be here. And then uh, Donnie was told to show up to keep you honest. <laughs> well, that's, I didn't know Donnie was coming, so I've had to change my whole seminar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. There's a witness here. Yeah. <clears throat> so. No, we... Uh, we filmed our hunt in Colorado, my hunt in Colorado last year. Well, right there, I got to change my script now because I was going to tell everybody it was Utah. Well, you can tell them that. I, I usually I lie about to, the state I'm hunting I was trying to give anyway. you some cover, Corey, so that all the Colorado guys didn't say, Corey, what are you doing, man? Yeah. Oh, well, anyhow. it did take 18 years to draw the tag. Okay, so, so it's not like it's not like I'm not like an over-the-counter unit. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah. So anyhow, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's a, so we. Uh, I you know our camera guy John wasn't able to to go. The dates didn't line up for his availability last year, and so I called Ben Potter at Kana and said, mm -hmm. "Hey, any chance you're free?" And he's like, "Well, I've got some stuff lined up, but I'd sure love to do it. We hunted together." Uh, the only other time was when we filmed the linguist film yeah. back in was it 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he worked it out and we called Sitka and said, hey, we've got a, an opportunity here. Would you be interested in doing a film? And so they said, yeah. And so we went down and hunted elk in Colorado and Ben filmed it. And then he uh, edited the film and we're premiering it this afternoon at the Sitka Depot in Bozeman. All right. And then it's going to hit YouTube when? Uh, I'm not sure. It was okay. going to be this next week, but I think it might be the week after, which, what are we, the 12th of August so today? So The last week of August. Yeah, it's going to be there. sometime right before elk season. It'll be on Sitka's? I think it's going to be on both Sitka and Elk 101. Elk 101. So, okay. But. Yeah, be on one of the two for sure. All right. Yeah. Got any spoiler alerts? Uh, an elk died. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I just ruined the whole thing right there. Dang it. I'm leaving worth watching now. No suspense. <laughs> yeah. Any any side, any color commentary to that, Donnie? No. I will just say that I haven't seen the film. I saw some rough drafts, but the experience, we heard more bugles in a 24-hour period than we have ever heard before. Wow. Yeah. Wow, it that's saying a, a lot. extreme bugle festival going yeah. on down there. Yeah. Did you guys go early or late in the season? Uh, what about the right time? Middle. Yeah, would we go oh. down the... It was a little later. I mean, 17th maybe? Okay. 16th, yeah. 17th, somewhere in there. <clears throat> yeah. We just released a film out on the Fresh Tracks YouTube channel about a Idaho super tag from I watched last it. year. I yeah. watched I it. I recognized too. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that he shot that on September fifteenth, but yeah. leading up to that, that was so insane. I could not believe when you were saying the amount of bugling, everybody in our camp, all of us were like, have you ever heard this much bugling before? And everyone's like, nope. You lay down <laughs> nope. at night and your ears just ring with bugles. Yeah. Like it literally close your eyes like, am I hearing bugles still or is that just? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's pretty special. So but that, yeah, so that we, was the same time that yeah. you guys were there in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. So. And a similar, you know, in Idaho, that unit takes, you know, you we don't have points or anything and there's Lesson. i think five rifle tags and yeah. five thousand people applying for it or something yeah and in you know in colorado the unit that i drew it took uh, 18 years to draw that tag yeah and it you know i think you can draw it with fewer points i just i'd put in for that long and then 
I was like, I'm never going to catch any of the units I started putting in for. So yeah. found that one. But it was, uh, you know, we, we spent we hunt two or three days. Two days. And uh, had to trim down all of that action into a 10 or 12-minute film for Sitka. Yeah. So it literally is nonstop bugling for yeah. 10 or 12 minutes in the film. <laughs> ben, ben edited it so that you get to hear every bugle. Oh, uh, cool. So there's a, it, it definitely, when it's done, it's like, that's it. I want more. Yeah. So, Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I've not seen squat diddly of it. No. So uh, I'll, I'll give a rating on it. No. Like, what, what was it? Siskel and Ebert? Yeah, were they two the, thumbs up. Yeah. The, the, the guys who were the movie critics or yeah. whatever. Or maybe we should pull the audience to watch it and then go to elktalkpodcast.com and, <laughs> and let us a, know. <laughs> give it a, a rating. There you go. Yeah. Is it rated G? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. there is blood. So it'd probably have to be That's PG. G. G is blood? You can't show blood in a rated G. Oh. Can okay. you? I don't know. Do they G? even make G-rated movies anymore? No. I think they start at R. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll watch a review for a movie. Uh, it's like, oh, that looks phenomenal. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't been to a movie theater. So I'm, if Hollywood was dependent upon me, there wouldn't be a Hollywood. Really? Yeah, I haven't been to a movie theater for so long. I'm trying to remember. Really? Yeah. So I don't. Well, I mean, you get. I don't it, you, know what those ratings are. You anymore. can stream them now for <clears throat> a yep. lot easier and stay home and. Yeah. Well, I still like the experience of going to a theater. That's really COVID just, I mean, that annihilated my movie going. And I watched, I streamed hmm. every movie you could possibly watch, but I just, huh. I don't know, there's something about watching, you know, Top Gun Maverick in a theater. Really? Yeah. Donnie, They're, you go to movies? Yes, I do. Really? Date nights. Huh. No, my wife. She's like, I'll call my girlfriend and we'll go to a movie. Because she knows if I go one, I'm going to complain about the price of the popcorn. I'm yeah. going to complain about the, the the lady with the big beehive hairdo who plopped down in front of me. Or the little kid in the back who keeps pushing on my seat. It's like, honey, you know, I just spent $50 for this. You know this. what? This is... you, you, just, you explained three challenges right there. And one action can solve all of those. What is that? jump up and yell at the little kid and spill your popcorn all over the lady in front of you. Oh, there you go. <clears throat> <clears throat> then she moves. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I, we've never had a good time at a movie. Wow. Uh, so I don't go. Do you have like a home theater? <clears throat> Couch. Yeah. Surround sound? No. no. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> see, we have a home theater even, yeah, and I still yeah. like going to the movie theater. Yeah, you see, I'm, uh, I just barely even have TV. And when you live out in the south of town here where I do, the the internet is like, it sucks. Yeah. You, you aren't streaming anything. Yeah. So are we going to talk about any elk hunting in this? Or I we thought just... we were. Yeah. Oh, we're okay. We're talking about a film premiere. I mean, okay. that's. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so. Uh, so I'm also doing a seminar. So yeah, before that, right. they said, uh, you know, we got to do a seminar and then a Q&A and then we'll premiere the film. Yeah. So we're, they're, they're using that, I think, to suck people in mm -hmm. and then make them watch the film. Yeah. And they give away all kinds of big prizes. And I stuff. think what they're actually doing is sucking people in with the film and making them sit through me talking for an hour before I that. <laughs> I don't think so. What are you going to talk about? Uh, I'm going to talk about elk behavior and how it changes throughout the rut and how that change in their behavior affects the 
way that we need to approach calling. Hmm. Sounds to me like that course you did for outdoor class. Mm, yeah, a little Kinda. bit. Yeah, I think... Mm. Uh, Sounds to me like something they could learn at the University of Elk County. There's definitely some of that in there. You know, it's it's funny because you'd think you talk about, you know, like the University of Elk Hunting, I put everything I know about elk in there. Yeah. But you can organize things and structure things in a way that it almost seems like new material. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like I talk about the different seasons and what elk are doing, you know, the life of a bull elk yeah. throughout the year. So I talk about how they're in bachelor groups and they move off to staging areas and all that. And then I talk about you know, attitude of elk. And if you're calling to them, you know, you need to use emotion. And there's two things that elicit emotion in an elk, a, you know, a cow that needs to be bred or a bull that wants to fight. Well, then you take all that and kind of put it together. And it's like, okay, so here is the calling strategy as you evolve through the season. As these bulls leave the bachelor groups and they get irritable and go off by themselves, mm -hmm. they're going to be a different animal to try to call in than two weeks later when they're with a herd of cows and they're actually establishing dominance and fighting other elk. Mm -hmm. And then a week later, they're going to be so focused on breeding, they've already established dominance that you've got to approach them completely differently with calling than you did a week ago. And so hmm. that's the, the premise of the seminar is talking about what the elk are doing, the difference between uh, a mature bull and a satellite bull during each of these phases and how different calling tactics will trigger different reactions out of the elk. Hmm. You believe that stuff, Donnie? Or is this all some conspiracy theory that Corey's putting out there? He definitely has a way of fluffing things up. <laughs> What he means is I have a way of stirring elk up and getting yes. reactions out of elk. I'm sure that's uh, yeah. what he meant. No, it, it it definitely is a different realm when the elk are together versus by when, when they're by themselves. Mm -hmm. Or even a herd bull that was the herd bull with all the cows and a younger bull early in the season has all those cows. Yeah. Well, next week... When the bigger bulls come out and now took his herd away from him, and now he's a satellite bull, mm -hmm. he's bugling and acting differently than when he was that herd bull. Yeah. So I'm going to have Donnie do my son. Yeah. He, just, he summed it up right there. There you go. Uh, so right now, by the time when this episode airs in a week, the bulls have rubbed. They're no longer in bachelor groups. They're dispersing. They're staging near the cows. And the younger bulls think, oh, this is my chance. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh, look at this. Yeah. Yep. Only to find out that. They're about, not really a herd bull yet. Yeah. Even though they get to play one for a week. Yeah. Yeah. He's just with his mom and all of her friends. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then, like then your the, son is acting weird this year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the herd bull comes and kicks him away from mom. Yeah. And then each of those require a different calling strategy, is what you're saying. Yep. And it was, you know, even on the, the film from uh, Colorado last year, you know, when I shot my bull, the uh, Donnie set up calling behind, and we had a little raghorn that came right by us going straight to Donnie. Mm -hmm. And then the herd bull comes in with all the cows and he's not coming to the calling. Yeah. And he's pinned in on the cows. And so, I mean, it's just, you see just in that little clip, you know, the difference in what the bulls have, what they're looking for, what they need, 
their mm-hmm. attitude. And then the other cool thing is I've spent the last two days scouting and I went and picked up three trail cameras we had left out since August 22nd of last year. Whoa. So we got <laughs> all of, you know, the end of August. So we got the early season, we got preseason, we got peak rut, we got everything on trail camera. And it's amazing to see. I mean, you, you literally see the rut unfold on trail camera there. Wow. Just, you know, the all the cows and calves are at the water. They're coming in there in yeah. August. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing a couple smaller bulls showing up. Mm-hmm. And they're hanging out with the cows on August 29th, 30th. You know, yeah. and they're, they're rubbed, but they're white antlered still. And you'll see a big, you know, 320-inch 6x6 come in completely by himself on September 2nd. And you don't see him again until September 20th. And then he's with the cows and he's just out wandering and you'll see three or four of these big bulls just show up at this water hole one time, you know, September 4th, September 6th, and then you don't see them again. And then all of a sudden, September 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th, there were like 11 different bulls at this water hole at all different times of the day. And they're just, you know, you can tell it's just chaos right then that three or four day period, every bull in the woods is running frantically looking for cows. Yeah. And then from the 20th through the 29th or so, all you see is this one herd bull comes in and there's 20 cows with him and they leave. And then there's just little bulls coming into that water hole for the next three hours after that. Yeah. So, I mean, it really, it was, it huh. was really cool because I did this, you know, the PowerPoint for the seminar and then I went and checked the trail camera. I'm like, this is exactly what I just talked about. Yeah. This is so cool to have like literal footage of of exactly what I'm trying to explain of how they're, you know, the, the dynamics change, the structure of the elk herds change, the attitude, the, you know, you can almost see the franticness in these little five points that come into the wallow and they're just thrashing and they go and look at a tree and they're running circles around there and they're kicking mud up. And it's just like, I've got all this energy and I have nowhere to put it. (laughs) It's like, that's the bull that you could call in right now by literally getting out and shutting a car door. Like he is so fired up that. Huh. Are you, are you going to have, uh, I guess, since you did your outline before? Yeah, you I, I don't, I mean, I have all the footage on my laptop, but, but I didn't I haven't have time. To, didn't have time to incorporate it into the PowerPoint. Huh. Well, uh, hearing you say that and talking about this progression, going back to that Idaho super tag hunt we did. So two nights before season open, we're glassing in this bowl that Scott ends up shooting. We see him. He's got 30-some cows with him, and he's just, we got some footage of it. He got his antlers in the roots of a sagebrush, and he just pulled that thing out of the ground, and it went 20 feet up in the air, and he's just like letting the world know. Opening morning, we're listening, and we're like, man, that sounds like him. And so we go set up, and he's we can't quite make out if that's him because he's on the edge of the timber, but we can see all of his cows. And here comes this other bull. But it's not a body size, maybe the size is a size of him. And he's a big, I mean, that thing was like yeah. a crazy body size. <laughs> and we got him aged at seven years old. So we took the teeth and we had it cementum aged out at Matson's lab. So this, we know everything about the age of this bull, the size of this bull. He gives up his cows without a fight mm-hmm. to some other bull that 
what did not uh, antler size was nowhere near as big as him but he had this this guy had a broken main beam uh, i think after the fourth I don't know if this bull had whooped him when he was younger. Do they know each other well enough? And, that, and that's, you know, I don't know. Sometimes they don't even have to fight. They just size each other up, and it's like, yep, you're the dominant bull. Yeah. I'm, he could have he whooped this guy three times before the sun got up very far. Yep. But he gave up his cows without a fight. This boy, he takes those 30 cows, and he's heading on up the big aspen drainage and just like, hey. Yeah, and uh, then he's lagging along behind him, and he's glunking and carrying on, and he is so frustrated. I just don't understand how he went from having 30 cows to no cows, and yep. he lost them to what looked like, to the human eye, looked like an inferior bull. Yep. Exact uh, same thing on trail cameras. So I've got a big, probably 320-inch 6x6 that came in on September 2nd. I'm like, oh, that's him. That's yeah. the herd bull. That's the big daddy. And there's a little, well, not little, but a nice six-point that barely has a six-point on each side. Body size, though, he looks like a big bull, but antler size, he's not. He's mm -hmm. one that ended up with the cows, and he had the cows from September 17th through October I think wow. 21st or 22nd, he was with the cows. Same six point. That big one came into the water hole by himself every time. I'm sure he ended up with a couple of cows somewhere. Yeah. But you could tell that this was the herd bull and he wasn't the big one. And the big one was probably a herd bull, but he didn't control the big herd. He probably just had a couple of cows and was content with that and took them back into a, a basin somewhere and just stayed there. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm dumbfounded as to that because... Yeah. He owned the joint on September 13th. On September 15th, he was over there like a little whoop dog. Yeah. But the good part was, <laughs> he was it didn't take a lot of cow calls for, to draw him up out of the bottom of that canyon. And he didn't come all the way up. But then by afternoon, he was up further and he started working his way up towards us yep. and i don't know if it was because he'd heard those heard me making all those cow calls earlier in the morning and he's like well when i get done taking my nap here i'm coming to yep. see what's there and it, it never works out that good one of the coolest things there. that i've seen was gosh it's been 25 years ago now a friend of mine was hunting a unit that's a controlled hunt for rifle and he was archery hunting it's open over the counter for archery and he called me and said, hey, I shot a really big bull last night and I'm having trouble tracking it. Can you come help me find it? So we went and he's explaining to me, called this bull up and he hit it a little bit high, but it was broadside and, you know, had decent blood. So we tracked and we tracked and we spent probably about 10 hours that morning into mid-afternoon. And finally, it's like, man, I, I haven't seen blood for four hours and there's tracks everywhere. I'm like, I just... I don't know. I don't think you got it. He's moving uphill here and it's in super steep, rugged country. So he's like, all right, well, let's go over on the other side of the canyon. There's a bunch of bugling over there last night and just we'll do an evening hunt over there. So we go around on the canyon and uh, clear across the canyon and it's just you know, probably 1,500, 2,000 feet to the bottom of the draw up the other side. We took the road across and went down the other ridge on the other side. And we go down there and a bull starts bugling. We work in. It's the bull he had shot the night before. 
And this bull oh. is like a 360-inch wow. six-point, just a giant. And the night before, he had probably 30 cows with him. So we're glassing him. He's bugling. He's standing out all by himself. You can see the blood stain high in that pocket up above the lungs there, you know, underneath the backbone. Just yeah. didn't catch anything vital. And he's bugling his head off over there. And he's bugling at a bull across the canyon on the side we had been tracking on where he came from from the night before. And this bull on the other side of the canyon is, he's a good bull, probably 320, 330. And he's got all of this bull's cows now. This bull, I mean, like I'm saying, 1,500 to 2,000 feet to the bottom and then back up on the side we're on is this bull. He's bugling and we watch all of these cows leave the big bull that they're with now come all the way down the canyon and come up to this herd bull that they'd been with the night before, just from him bugling <laughs> back and forth there. All those cows oh. left. The other bull that's over there that had the cows is so mad. He's running, he's thrashing trees, he's doing everything, but he won't come down the canyon and up and follow those cows. He just stays over there. Hmm. Just from a bugle, though. And so that's, yeah. you know, that was my first real experience of... The bulls use their bugles to establish their dominance. Yeah. And, you know, that the display bugle that we talk about, they're displaying dominance to the cows, and they will call cows from across the canyon away from another bull just by their bugle. Wow. I just figure maybe they know each other from past oh, skirmishes. Or, yeah. I mean, they hang out all summer, so. Yeah. Got to have some respect and pecking order there that they have established over the years. Yeah. I don't know if this bull, if it, if he later in the season would have finally got up the courage to go get his cows back, or if he's like, well, I'll wait till next year. I'll be eight years old next year, <laughs> yeah. and and this old boy, he's about, he's going to be twelve next year. I I think I can get him. I can next get him year. next year. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm putting a lot of human <laughs> rationale in. And maybe that bull sitting there thinking. These cows aren't ready to be bred yet, so I'm going to let this guy go, Maybe. keep them rounded up, waste all his energy, lose 30 or 40 pounds over the next five or six days. When the cows come in estrus, I'll go up there and take them back over then. Yeah. Well, on our channel, on the Fresh Tracks channel, in a couple of weeks, you're going to see our Wyoming uh, general season rifle elk hunt in the backcountry uh, from last year. And, and people, that was one with Bo and Mike. Yeah. yeah. People are going to crack up. I, I just finalized and gave it the approval to be published in a, about a month. And when they see that little, he's barely even a raghorn. <laughs> <laughs> he is the most ornery sounding, loud, deep throated bugle ever. You can see the Spitzer Mike, he's just like, Oh man, I can't wait. And Bo's <laughs> like, I'll move over to the back here and I'll get him to come. And they're just, you can see they're rubbing their hands like, Boy, we got a big one coming. <laughs> and this guy steps out and Mike looks at the camera like, That him? <laughs> and you hear Marcus say, that's him. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's why they're out. They're all individuals, just like yep. Yeah, they're different around. attitudes, different. I mean, it's just like when you when you just start looking at it, you realize there's that loud mouth little punk over there that will not quit bugling, <laughs> and he's just running his mouth. And 
he, you know, he thinks he's the king of the woods. Yeah. So he'll come right in there. He's arrogant. Yeah. And then you've got another one that's old bull that's just smart and wise, and he'll bugle once in a while, but he's played the game, and he's yeah. going to be a little bit harder to coax in. And then you've got the quiet one that is curious. You know, so I mean, it's just mm-hmm. you put all that together, and you start kind of thinking in human terms of attitude and psychology, and it's like, you know, elk aren't all that complicated. Yeah. You know, it's if you want to start a fight, it's going to be hard to start a fight with a quiet, timid bull. Yeah. It's going to be hard to start a fight with a wise old bull that knows he's the champion of the mountain. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be pretty easy to start a fight with that guy over there that's flexing his biceps in front of the <laughs> mirror with his shirt off and, you know, thinks he's tough. So, those, and, you know, that's what I talk about. Well, I'll walk by elk to find an elk that's ready to fight. Yeah. And that's what I'm looking for is the, you know, it might be a big bull that's just, it's his day to be a be arrogant and tough yeah. it might be a young bull that you know hasn't got beat up yet it might be a bull that's been beat up four times but just doesn't know any better and wants the fifth time and, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well i guess when you think about it that way so when when you're explaining that in my head i'm saying okay every one of those require a different strategy totally. and approach it's but not, every one of them are susceptible if you know what is the right approach right 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 yeah Stra- calling strategy yep yeah the downside is though there's you know how do i say this if the the old thing is if all you use is a hammer everything looks like a nail in, in other words if the only tactic or way you call is just this you try to do that in every situation yep. and yeah it works sometimes but there's the whole other totally. part of the spectrum where it just isn't going to work. Yeah. So what's that say? Experiment? Try? No, I, I mean, or, yeah, but I think it's a, it's an educated experiment. You know, you definitely want to look at it and analyze, you know, which bull is this? Mm-hmm. Is he the teenager that's running his mouth? Is yeah. he the... The 25-year-old who's just so full of testosterone, you know, that he's at the gym pumping iron and he's doing everything, getting ready for that big fight and, mm-hmm. you know, it's fight time. Or is he, you know, a big bull that's out there and he's he's been to the dance several times. He knows how to leave with the ladies and he doesn't need to play the game. And so as you look at each of those things, you've got to analyze, what can I do to convince this bull to come to me? Mm-hmm. Is he more interested in cows? Is he desperate for cows? A herd bull that has 30 cows isn't desperate for cows. Yeah. So you can give him all the sweet cow sounds you want, and he's going to sit there and be like, that's great. I'm not going to leave 30 to go find one. Right. Unless his 30 aren't in estrus, and this one is. Then right. he might. You know. Yeah. So then you've got to utilize that. Is there a, a satellite bull that literally just got beat up like what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. A bull that now should be a herd bull, but he's a satellite bull because another bull just came and took his cows He's probably a little embarrassed, a little bit upset, <laughs> probably pretty susceptible to coming in to a smaller sounding bull or to some cows. And so you just have to look at each situation each day and it changes from day to day. You know, yeah. as you go from that bull being by himself in a staging area, he's irritable. He doesn't want any company. This is his territory. It's pretty easy to walk in there and make him mad, but he's not going to come into cow calls because he's not ready for cow calls. He knows there's no reason to hang out with cows on August 30th. Yeah. So you got to get in close and you've got to mm-hmm. irritate him. Then a week later, he's out wandering. He's looking for cows. He's covering a bunch of country. He finds a group of cows that has a small bull there. 
He's probably not ready to fight yet. He might just try bugling and get the cows to come to him. Yeah. But then a week later, he's going to fight everything he sees to let everybody know he's the dominant bull and those are his cows. And then a week after that, he's going to be with the cows and he's focused on breeding. He's like, I'm not going to even bother with these other bulls now. So, I mean, that same bull from day to day takes a completely different strategy to, to call in. Yeah. So I've been waiting until we had both you guys again. Uh-oh. Donnie's like... Uh-oh, I didn't know I was walking into this. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, we get so many questions about setups. Yeah. And you guys have hunted together for a long time. And you guys know the setup. Gig. Since Donnie was young. Yeah. Really? Yeah. If I was young, you know how young Corey was. Well, I'm still young. <laughs> yeah. <That's>... Man. <laughs> Well, as I say, Donnie, there's a reason I got an A in history. It was easy. There were only three presidents you had to remember when I went to (laughs) history. Somewhat joking. But anyhow, we get all these questions about setups, right? Uh, Some of them are about when someone's solo, but a lot of them are about, hey, me and my partner, we're still trying to figure this out. You guys got any advice, any general things of what to do? Or maybe you approach it with, here's a whole list of things not to do. Because you guys, at least in the footage, it looks like you guys have a pretty intuitive understanding of whoever's the caller knows what the shooter's going to do and vice versa. Does that just come over time? Or mistakes, problems, successes? I think after you spend, I think that... kind of figured each other out like after the first year okay just repeated setups and even if it wasn't an encounter but you had a bull bugling you're setting up trying to make that encounter happen and being able to kind of read each other mm-hmm. and know okay when i'm when i'm up as a shooter and I know where Corey's at and I can tell what he's doing I can tell if he's sweeping off to one side or the other to get to kind of steer the bull if he's raking if and then you can also identify if okay the bull's not responding and it's time to move forward you don't want to just sit there and wait all day, if the bull's moving off, mm-hmm. come back, regroup, figure out what you're going to do. Maybe he stays where you were at your shooting position, and you're moving up a little bit farther. And you let off a couple of cow calls as a shooter up ahead to see if there will be a response. And if there is that response, the caller at the back now can take over and you go back to being silent up at the front. I mean, yeah, definitely comes with, you know, hunting together and that experience together and time together. But it's also, you know, we have the same vision, the same goal of of what we want the outcome to be. And Mm -hmm. that is whoever has the bow in their hand is the one that's going to make it happen. I mean, as far as putting a tag on an animal. Right. So if I'm the caller and Donnie has the bow in his hand... I know it's up to Donnie to, to put the tag on the animal, but it's up to me to get the animal in front of him. And mm-hmm. that's my job. And so I think both of us understand that we play different roles at different times. And Donnie's not going to be successful as a shooter unless I 
provide him with an opportunity yeah. and vice versa. And so I think we just understand that the better we do our job, the, the better the other person's going to be able to do theirs. And that's our goal at the end of the day. It's not... I just got to get Donnie out of the way so I can shoot my bull. You know, I just want to, yeah. I want him to shoot a bull quickly so I can hunt. You know, it's, it is, I want Donnie to shoot a bull because I want to see how he reacts on film this year. <laughs> you know, it's, I, it really has for me transitioned from a selfish and I was, you know, I think it's, it's natural for us to be somewhat selfish mm-hmm. as a younger hunter that I just want to kill. I want to be the one that kills this bull. Oh, my hunting partner killed the bull. I should have been the shooter. And then as you mature, I think uh, you recognize that both Donnie and I are going to be successful if we work together. Yeah. And I want him to be successful because I know if he's successful, he's going to want me to be successful. And it just, I mean, it's like this escalation of efficiency that happens there. And so um, as far as, you know, learning each other and and being a well-oiled machine out there, I think it really just comes down to understanding our roles that, Donnie, you're the shooter. Go set up and get in a good spot where you're going to maximize the efficiency of that setup. I'm going to go and call where I'm going to maximize the efficiency of bringing that bull in. And I'm not worried about Donnie. I know he's going to do what he needs to do when he's the shooter up front there. I'm worried about my job bringing the bull into a shooting lane for him. So I might be running around back there trying to steer that bull in. And uh, Donnie's up there, knows what he's doing. I think, you know, when Donnie and I started hunting together, he didn't have a lot of experience in archery hunting. And so, you know, not that I had a a ton of experience, but I think I had more at that point in our lives. And so I think I did kind of control things a little bit the first few years as far as, hey, go set up by that tree over there. And then I'd go back and call, and then I'd come up, and Donnie would still be sitting by the tree, and I'm like, that bull's moving away. you got to go. Like, get up there on him. And so there was some of that, and now it's just, it's natural. Like, I don't, I might say, hey, go set up over there on the ridge. I'm going to go back here and call, and Donnie finds a spot to set up, and if that bull's not coming in, I know Donnie's not sitting there for longer than 10 minutes. He's up moving, so I need to move up now. And when I move up to where Donnie was set up, you know, it's not even, we don't even communicate that. I just know that... That gets to one of the questions I was going to ask is, how often do you wait for the bull to come to the shooter versus, the hey, he's not coming, so the shooter needs to start working towards the bull? And how do you communicate that? Or is it just over time you, you're like, oh, I saw Donnie moving off. He, he's trying to get closer. Yeah. And so you then change either your position or your calling accordingly. Is that... So there's a really good video we just put out on the Elk 101 YouTube channel. It's one of the In the Zone series videos. Mm -hmm. Is it even out yet? Maybe we don't. Maybe we just finished. Maybe it's ready. (laughs) It'll be out by the time this goes out or released really close to it. Um, But it's Donnie's hunt from last year from Destination Elk where he shot the elk and it went in the lake. But we break down the whole setup, where Donnie's set up, where I'm calling from. We show Donnie getting up and moving towards a bull. And so, I mean, it really highlights that I can't see Donnie, but I know what Donnie's doing. And I'm moving around the other side of the meadow to try to pull the bull in front of him as he's moving in on the bull. And so, yeah, I mean, it really is. I just, you know, my job is to call that bull in to Donnie. Mm -hmm. And my job is to try to get that bull to come our direction. And if he's not... I'm going to have to maybe move up on him knowing that Donnie's probably already moved up on the bull if the bull's not coming to us. And yeah. so I don't know. There's not a lot of communication. No, and it, it's a matter of knowing the communication that you've had prior. Yeah. And 
um, a lot of times if I'm back calling and nothing is happening and Corey knows nothing's happening, he will either let out a cow call that we recognize with each other that we communicate that way. Three cow calls. Three quick cow calls. Either come to me or we are moving ahead. Yeah. Or um, it's not working with me back there calling. Corey realizes it. He will bugle from his shooting position. And okay, it's either working, it's not working, or we might be getting ready to move forward and be on the chase for the bull. Uh-huh. So if I'm the shooter up there and I bugle, Donnie knows, hey, we aren't escalating the situation here. So Corey just bugled in closer to the bull. So he's either trying to fire the bull up and be close to the bull and get the bull bugling. So then Donnie realizes I need to keep calling from where I'm at. Or, like you said, we're moving in on the bull. Corey just bugled to get him fired up. Now I need to go to Corey. And so, I mean, there's not a whole lot of options you know, we don't overthink it too much. It's just a, a matter of if the shooter is supposed to be quiet and he bugles, there's a reason. Yeah. And I need to go up there and find out what that reason is. If I cow call three times, no matter what we're doing or where we are, if we cow call three times, that means regroup. Let's get together either the situation, you know, the bull busted and we need to regroup or the bull's not coming in. Let's regroup and come up with a different strategy. But it's always three cow calls means let's get together right here. Come to me. Do you think there's benefit in uh, for partners to get more accustomed to just go every setup that even though it's low odds, you do it anyhow because you're going to learn and you're going to learn about each other and your habits? Yeah, there's always benefit to, to setting up, but I wouldn't just set up knowing it's low odds. I would do everything I can to increase the odds. Okay. You know, it's like... I've seen people set up in the middle of an alder patch before. Yeah. And it's like, you aren't, you don't even have shooting lanes. Yeah. You're completely hidden, but you're trying to kill this elk, not hide from it. Yeah. You know, you want to stay hidden, but you also want shooting lanes. So don't set up with a, a bull that's screaming his head off and is all you need to do is shut a truck door to get him to come in. Mm-hmm. Don't go and set up in the middle of an alder patch, yeah. you know, take your time and, and, take an extra 30 seconds and find at least one shooting lane and say that bull is likely to come through this opening before you set up and, and try to call him in. Because if you set up in that alder patch, you have zero chance. Yeah. So don't don't just set up in a low chance setup. Take a little bit of time to increase that chance. But yes, even we'll set up sometimes if it's questionable. You know, it's like ah, the wind is kind of mm-hmm. iffy here, but let's see if we can do it. Let's see if we can pull it off. And nine times out of 10, we can't. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you learn something from it. It's right. like, oh, if I'd have been set up up over there, the, when the wind switched, it went this way. And I should have known that because the wind switch is 180 degrees and I'm set up over here. And the, so, I mean, there's, if you're looking, there's something to learn every step you take in the woods. Yeah, every setup, every time that you get into that setup situation, it's a learning opportunity. Yeah. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Mm-hmm. Maybe when you get back together in group, was I... When you regrouped together, was I too far back from you? Could you see me? Could you not see me? I'm really good at telling Donnie what he did wrong. Uh, exactly. I've, <laughs> I've learned a lot. <laughs> Donnie and John, they, they've got it down. You talk about hunting partners and then the dynamic of a cameraman there. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize how much fun 
they were making of me behind me when I was leading out there. They, I, oh. thought I, I thought I was in control and I was the leader, and they're back there shaking their heads going, just let him do his thing. It'll <laughs> it'll it'll work out but yeah. Yeah. he's he's that big bull out there strutting around tearing stuff up yeah. and we're just back there watching yeah. <laughs> is <laughs> is there ever a time where the shooter does any calling when you're tag teaming like that yeah or is it very rare that it's rare but there there's a couple instances so typically when you have a two team calling shooting situation you want the shooter to be quiet right you know the caller the bull doesn't even know the shooter's there he just thinks it's him and this caller which he thinks is an elk and he's not expecting a surprise in the middle so having Mm -hmm. that shooter out in front quiet is i mean that's the key to to the setup so the only time that i really say you know if we're going to call is if we have a bull that's hung up and say he's 150 yards from the caller and we just aren't able to put enough pressure on whether it's because of terrain or whatever, we can't get that collar close enough to the bull to trip his trigger. And if you're at 150 yards, if you move into 100 yards, that's a completely different elk now. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're calling to him from 150 yards, he might be like, yeah, you're far enough away. I'm not too worried. All of a sudden, you're at 100 yards and you're in his face and you scream. He's like, I'm coming in right now. Yeah. So if we have that situation where the caller's 150 yards from the bull, the shooter's 50 yards out in front, but we, the caller's just not tripping the bull's trigger. Sometimes I'll cow call, get the bull to bugle, and then I'll just scream a challenge at him right there to be like, hey, I just ran in 50 yards. I'm coming. And now he's going to come and meet me part way. And then the caller back behind takes over and calls again. So then the bull's mind, he's thinking, this bull just ran up here. Maybe a cow was coming into me. He came up and screamed, and now he's retreated back 50 yards. But it's got that bull coming our way, and now we're able to suck him in to that shooting lane. So hmm. that's really the only time, I think, that we do any calling. That, that and the triangle. Yeah. When we're moving in somewhat together. Yeah. What, what is the triangle? The, the the bull, the shooter, and the collar form a triangle of some sort. Correct. Yep. Sometimes both of us will be in the position and calling. We're calling to each other. Oh, okay. And ignoring the bull that's that we're trying to get on. Um, he's not been responsive or he's not moving. He's kind of stalled up. So we will start a fight between us okay, and slowly start working our way up towards him, escalating our calls as we're getting closer to him. Okay. So we'll split up instead of setting up, you know, a, a shooter 50 yards in front of a caller, mm-hmm. we'll actually spread out uh, horizontally, Yeah, you know, so kind of, so we basically form a triangle. You got the bull at the top of the triangle and then the caller and the shooter each a leg of the triangle kind of equal distance apart there. Okay. And then as we call back and forth to each other, we're starting a fight, but we're bringing the fight to the bull. So we aren't just moving straight to each other. We're moving towards each other as we move up gotcha. the hill to the bull. And a lot of times, I mean, that is the, we'll have a bull that we're like, we know he's there. He piped off 40 minutes ago, but he won't bugle now. So we'll just split up and start bugling back and forth. And it doesn't take usually two or three sets of us calling to each other. And that bull will fire off. He's like, there's two bulls down there going off. What's what are they fighting about? Them? I need to be involved in this. Yeah. And uh, then as we start getting close to him, he's like, well, they're working right up into my bedroom now, and so I guess they're bringing the fight to me. Well, then once that happens and he gets fired up, then we swing into that caller shooter position, 
the caller in the back is now the one that's communicating with the bull and the shooter yeah. has gone silent and is set up and ready to shoot. So, huh. so if you get responses from them using cow calls, you stay with cow calls? And if you get responses using bugles, you You're stay like with bugles or throwing. This is like a practice for the Q and A today at the seminar. Like, whoa! I got over here partners setups, calling tactics. It's like, man, I, I, I very seldom get both of you guys in the same room. So. <laughs> So um, you're just trying to get honest answers out of me today. Yeah, that's, that's for yeah. the most part. Yeah, I, we're here, uh, you know, ground checking your your advice with Donnie. So I see. Uh, but do you pretty much stick with the same? It's like, uh, and this is my simple way of saying it. Or for me, is like, oh, he liked cow calls. I guess I'm going to stick with cow calls. Or hmm, he responded to a bugle. I guess I'm going to keep bugling. Right. Is there? A, any rule of thumb to that, or are there just so many exceptions you really can't say one way or the other? A lot of times, if you recognize that they're not responding to your bugles, but every time that you're doing the cow calls, they're responding, then the stop with the bugles and just <laughs> yeah. cow, they're working, so stay with what's working. Yeah. I but, always start with the cow call. Okay. So I, you know, even locating, if I'm on a ridge, I don't just step out on a ridge and bugle first. I always cow call first. And the reason why is there might be a bull 60 yards away. And if I bugle first, it might scare him. Yeah. Like, whoa, there's a bull right here. I'm too close. I'm moving off. Yeah. Well, with a cow call, it's never going to be threatening. There, There's cows spread out all over through the woods. So it's not uncommon for a cow to all of a sudden just mew mm -hmm. and a bull to hear it so i always start with the cow call because it's not threatening you can always escalate from there but sometimes it's hard to back off if a bull doesn't want to bugle that close to him so yeah. start with the cow call then from there i judge you know whether the bull is right there and he immediately fires right back at that cow and keep giving him cow calls he's obviously interested if it takes two or three cow calls and he doesn't answer and then you let a location bugle and the answers it's like Okay, either he couldn't hear the cow calls because he's too far away, or he's more interested in communicating with a bull right now to establish yeah. dominance, to, you know, whatever it is. So I always start with the cow call, and then based on the bull's response to that, determine what the next step is. But with that being said, I almost always escalate to a challenge bugle. Okay. I'll use cow calls to work in close, get the bull fired up, whatever it is. But when I want that bull in my lap immediately, I give him a challenge bugle. Hmm. So you don't just drive your motorbike or ATV, turn it off, and 30 seconds later, let out your bugle? Well, sometimes if I'm trying to, you know, if there's somebody I don't like that's hunting an area, I'm trying to scare <laughs> the elk out of there, yeah, I might be that. But. The reason I ask that is uh, that one time when you were here in Montana and we heard the ATV on the logging road down below us, and then it stops. And within 30 seconds, you hear a... a yeah. <laughs> Corey just looked at me like... Ah, and uh, so we just sat there for the entertainment factor. Heard the ATV start up again, <laughs> drives out to the next corner in the logging road, turns it off, and within 20 seconds is bugling again. Yeah. And if he got any responses, we didn't hear him. You know, and the funny thing is, is sometimes that does work. Sometimes a bull will respond. Mm -hmm. You know, they they hear ATVs, and maybe they don't correlate that. 
I've had I've had times where an ATV is ridden by and scared elk, and the bull is down there screaming, trying to regroup his cows, and the ATV is just you know right on through there, and the bull's bugling over the top of it. Yeah. So you know there are times when it's not uncommon that an elk will bugle with an ATV a hundred yards away, mm-hmm. you know, as he's trying to round up his cows that just got scattered by the ATV. Um, but that's going to be the exception, not the rule. And so yeah. if I'm hunting off a motorcycle, I mean, the area we hunt's a motorized restricted area, so we can use motorcycles to take camp into an area, but we can't hunt off of it. So yeah. we can set up camp, and then from camp, everything's on foot. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we're riding a motorcycle up to a ridge and getting off and bugling. If there's nothing there, we ride four miles away and bugle again. But there are areas where you can do that. Yeah. And uh if I'm going to do that, I'm going to stop and give it at least three or four minutes. And, and I really think if there's a motorcycle trail there or even a truck, you know, elk mm-hmm. are used to hearing that. Right. If the elk's 300 yards away from the road, he's heard every truck that's drove by that morning. It doesn't make yeah. him not bugle. Right. But if you get out and the radio's still going and you're talking and then all of a sudden you bugle, <laughs> he's like, that bugle came from the exact same location as those voices that were just 15 seconds earlier. Something's not right. Yeah. So you got to give him time. Yeah. Well. I figured that was probably going to be the answer, but I thought, oh, maybe give me a little hint about how you just drive around on my motor scooter. and uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't own one of those motor scooters. That's probably a good thing. Yeah, you, you have enough trouble with glass shower doors. You yeah. put, put on a moving <laughs> vehicle. If, if you ask me, right, one of the PT exercises they give me for this tendon that they couldn't replace is like, running the throttle on your motorbike yeah and they give me this big wooden dowel and they have me they have a like string one of those, on it yeah one of those uh, uh stretchy you know exercise bands and they make me twist it and keep twisting it and i got i stand on that band and i keep Ooh. twisting it until it gets tighter and tighter within about three of those exercises my wrist is so fatigued yeah. and like my days of riding a motorcycle are over not that I was ever a good motorcycle rider to start with, but uh, so don't got to worry about me, but I bet you I could still lead a lawnmower with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's, uh, for me, you know, the, this is a, a sidebar, but uh, it, it sounds weird, but I feel like this summer my concentration on my archery shooting is more purposeful. Really? Yeah, because I'm aware of, that missing tendon i'm aware that my wrist now has a tendency to cock in towards my the inside where my thumb is because i don't have the tendon on the outside so when i'm pulling my release back i really am focusing on okay am i relaxing everything there and i know that sounds weird like you should do that all the time But it's just the reminder because it feels a little different and it forces me, okay, bubbles level, yeah, okay, everything's relaxed, thump. <laughs> I'm actually shooting better this wow. summer than I have in past years. And I don't know if it's just a a worry about it or an awareness about it or what, but it's just probably more of a focus, a concentration yeah. on it. Yeah, you get There's got to be an easier way than falling through a glass door, though, to... Improve your archery shooting. I am pretty sure. Uh, But you guys would get a kick out of this. I was thinking about this last night when I was at home. Because now I I have a a 10-yard marker at my archery range. And (laughs) 
<laughs> this is almost embarrassing. <laughs> I use my 20-yard pin at 10 yards. The reason is, is I want to know when I'm shooting at a grouse at 10 yards, I, I stand up above, above the Because <laughs> <laughs> I want to know exactly where it is. I want to yeah. take his head off. So you're hitting about three inches high? No, about two. Two? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Grouse pin. <laughs> yeah, my 20-yard pin is now my grouse pin, but instead of sh- holding right on his head, I, I hold, hold right like, at the right, base right of the where, neck. Right where the neck joins the body. Yep. yep. You can't go wrong there. You either yeah. take his eyeball out or you shoot his head off with the base of yeah. the body. Yeah. yeah. You guys would have cracked up, though, because uh, there's a mark out in my yard because I got... 20, 30, 40, 50, and... You're going to have to talk to a target company and see if they'll make you a grouse target. A <laughs> uh, little miniature turkey. Yeah, and my my old neighbors, they, they sold their house. I used to be able to go stand in their yard, and that was my 75-yard uh, distance. But now I got new neighbors, and I don't want to walk over there and say, hey, you don't mind if I wing a few arrows across <laughs> your driveway here, do you? It's uh, so. But that's all right. If anymore, I I shoot at such close distances. Yeah. It's nice to shoot long distance to, I mean, yeah. I'd never do it hunting, but right. man, when you shoot 80 yards, mm-hmm. 10 shots at 80 yards, and you walk up to 20, oh, yeah, it's, it's, that dot looks huge. It's like, how could I not hit a two-inch dot at 20 yards? You yeah. know, it just, it really, it it highlights your issues and mm-hmm. helps you work on them. And when you overcome your issues at 80 yards, it's a non-issue at 20. Yeah. So it is nice to extend that range, but you can do the same thing at 50 yards, at 60 right. yards, you know, any, instead of just repetitively shooting a hundred shots at 20 yards, that's, that's not helping you. Yeah. Go back and do that at 60 yards and overcome all your issues there. Yeah. Then all the yardages that are closer than that are going to be cake. Yeah. I'm not taking any 50 yard grouse shots. Really? <laughs> 10 yards? You think you can get closer? Yeah. I know I can get closer. <laughs> you know what I've seen? Uh, I showed you the video last night. I know. But two groups of yeah. six grouse, which means there were at least four or five little babies, yeah. which are no longer little babies, right. but they're as dumb yeah. as little babies. Yeah, you could kill them with a stick. Oh, they just sat there and looked at me, and I, I thought, oh, you're going to be in my, you're going to be in my pot here in about a month. Yep. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. You guys are going to let me shoot a limit in Idaho this year. Every day, hopefully, every day. Yeah, yeah. And now that I've got Michael, Michael's going to be my camera guy. He's now a fan of my grouse cooking. No, before that, he's like, "Eh." Mike, what'd you change? Nothing. I just never let him eat any of it. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't seem that worked up about it. And then when I made him one day in camp, him and Dale, when Dale worked for us, they're like. What the hell? What is this? Holy cow. Let's go shoot some more of those. All right. So we went and shot some more of them, and I took them home to Kim. So I, uh, that's where I got to be careful, yeah. showing my grouse shooting on film. If she happens to watch the episode, say, yeah. and those don't end up coming home, she'll be like, what did you do with those grouse you shot? I didn't see them. <laughs> I only have six grouse in the freezer, and you shot 11 on that hunt. Yeah. Where are the other five? Yeah. So, oh, wow. But, no, it's, uh, it's that time of year where... I'm just, so many things are going through my head. Yeah. I've been on the road so much. I don't feel like I'm in shape at all. I, uh, the good part about archery is it only takes five minutes 
to get a little bit of practice in. Yeah. You know, whereas if I'm going to go on a good hike that gets gets me conditioned a little bit, I'm needing at least an hour to two hours. But I can go out and do 10 arrows real quick. Yeah. At least. I guess that's being spoiled of having a range right near your yard. Well, and that's, I've gotten to the point, because it used to be, I would want an hour. I'd want to go out and shoot my bow for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would shoot a hundred arrows or more, you wow. know, and like every day. And I'm to the point now where I, I think that actually can be detrimental. Mm-hmm. And now I just go out and I'll shoot maybe 10 arrows a day, but every single arrow I'm focused on. Instead of just yeah. going out and being like, I'm going to shoot for an hour and the first 10 shots, all I'm going to do is just fling an arrow at the target and then I'll start working on it. Now I got the first arrow is at 40 yards because that's my average elk shot probably mm-hmm. is 35, 40 yards. So my first three arrows are at 40 yards and I'm shooting it just like I get one shot Yeah. and I need to make sure I hit the dot on that. And so it's, you know, my, my shooting has been more focused this summer for different reasons than yours, but <laughs> uh, I think I'm shooting as good as I ever have. And part of it's the bow. Part of it is just the change in, instead of saying I've got a hundred shots and I want to make sure my last 10 are good. Now I'm saying I only have 10 shots. I want to make sure all 10 of them are good. Yeah. Uh, I think it's helped me focus more. Yeah. All, both of you guys shoot fixed blades, right? I shot a mechanical on that Axis deer I shot this summer. First time I've ever hmm. shot a mechanical. So hmm. uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to hunt elk with them, but yeah. I'm definitely more open to, I mean, before Idaho, they, it was illegal to shoot them. them. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't even, didn't matter. But now that we can, you know, I think I would, I would shoot a deer. I would shoot a bear with yeah. a mechanical. I, I don't think I'd take a chance on something with as big a bones as an elk has. Yeah. Even seeing on that axis, because the axis deer, I shot it tight on the shoulder, quartering slightly to me. Of course, it was at three yards, so <laughs> that, that's a little different. But it uh, it performed well, but it still, it, it passed through, but it literally laid on the ground just on the other side of where the deer was standing. With a fixed blade, it would have buried halfway into the ground, 20 yards behind it. Yeah. So it definitely lost some energy going through it especially at that close range but then if you hit bones and stuff i mean it's just from a mechanical engineering standpoint you know looking at where the energy is transferring and how it's transferring and all that yeah solid broadhead is is still my favorite yeah donnie just nodded his head the audience can't tell that you nodded yeah donnie no i've never shot uh the mechanicals that any animals yeah, and it's just it's been working for yeah, quite yeah. a few years and <laughs> why change why change yeah. and just the horror stories that you've seen and heard over the years with the mechanicals as well as just and i know they've come a long way i mean when rage first came out you know there were issues with them opening issues with you know just yeah. a lot of different things and and they've come a long way i don't think that there's those issues anymore um but it really i look at it I'm like okay what are the benefits of shooting a mechanical mm-hmm. and it's really the big thing is everybody says well they fly just like a field point well so does a fixed blade if your bow's tuned true, and your arrows right? are yeah. tuned. i mean that there's no doubt good. i have struggled with getting broadheads to tune myself mm-hmm. yes i've i've noticed that yep. but i've also worked at it and now it's it's not an excuse anymore it's not yeah. like well, i'm just going to find something that flies like my field point it's i need to work on my bow to get my broadheads to fly like my field point so that yeah. gets rid of that argument the other one is well you can get bigger cutting diameters and and they cut a bigger hole absolutely there's no right. doubt 
but I'm shooting four blades on a, you know, a G5 Striker X that has four cutting surfaces that, you know, is, I don't know what the diameter is, inch and a quarter or something, but it's, it's sufficient. Mm -hmm. I get massive blood trails with that. And I don't punch a great big hole through both sides of the animal like a mechanical might, yeah. but might. I get plenty of blood, you know, and that's the yeah. thing. The downside is you hit a bone or something, a mechanical is going to struggle with that energy and the momentum mm -hmm. because you've got energy transfer taking place on those blades open up and things happen in there. So I right. think what you gain in maybe a bigger cutting diameter, I think is not enough to outweigh what you lose in if you don't hit perfectly. Yeah. If you hit perfectly behind the shoulders, don't hit a rib or anything on an elk, yeah, mechanical is right. going to slice that thing open and it's yeah. going to be devastating. But it's archery hunting and things don't always go perfectly and as Come on. Planned. I thought everything went according to script out yeah. there. No, that's that's all that's just what we show on video. <laughs> we don't <laughs> that's been the, the fun part for our videos. We do show the yep. everything. Yeah. I mean that's we, we might not show everything, everything, but we yeah. show failure, disappointment, misses. If we lose an animal, you know, that's just yeah. We want it to be real yeah. and not just show the social media side of it that, oh, here's a big animal I shot. Right. There's, there's a story behind right. it that's not always glory. Yeah. We don't show finishing shots. Like sometimes, you know, you hit an animal, say you hit it in the spine or yeah. something. I'm not going to show a guy yeah. walking up and finishing off an animal. Yeah. Or if you know the animals, it's terminal and they're still laying there. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? There's a private boundary just over there, 400 yards. I'm putting another bullet in there. We don't usually show those finishing shots. And some people are like, oh, I want to see it all. It's like, mm. you, yeah. you, you get the gist of it. Yeah. Here. We, we don't, I don't, <laughs> it's kind of weird when you make media content. No matter what you do, yeah. so, someone feels you should have you're hiding something, you're showing too much. Yeah, it's you, a, someone you are going to be a, judged. Yeah, which is fine. I accept that. You know, that's part of the gig. Yep. So and that's it. You're you've always done a good job. You've always had haters, and you just smile, and it doesn't get under your skin. I get one person that questions something I do, and it it bothers me. It's like <laughs> I need to prove that you know justify why I did what I did because I know yeah. it's right. Man, the last year. Yeah. I don't know if it's COVID or what, but people just don't have a filter anymore. And they yeah. just, they don't have common courtesy. I mean, I'm not speaking in general. There, there are a lot of people that yeah. have less of a filter. I've gotten more emails and messages from people. I'm like, you'd never say that to my face. Right. You would never walk up to me and say, you single-handedly have ruined hunt elk hunting. Yeah. There's more people in the woods and it's your fault and you've ruined it. Yeah. And I get those messages regularly now. Yeah. And so it's, it has caused me to step back and be like, is there truth to that? Like, you know what, there is a, there's a negative benefit there, mm -hmm. but what's the positive benefit? Right. You know, are we doing more good than, than harm? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Otherwise I wouldn't do it. That's yeah. I'm, I'm not here for glory or ego or money, right. you know, any of that. I love hunting and I want to see it protected and that's my motivation and so it is good to to get some of those and stop and evaluate. You know what? Am I am I justifying what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Is there a, a reason that maybe shouldn't be there? Yeah. And it's been good. It still hurts when people say mean things, but yeah. it's uh, I'm I'm beyond that. I know you I, are. You've always I, been good at 
it, you know, is what it is. Everyone's going to have their, their own ideas. But I, I know in our content, we sit down in, in our, all of our pre-production stuff. Like we've spent the last six weeks pre-producing every episode to the best you can, right? Yeah. You get out there. This whole, uh, it's like the old Mike Tyson's <laughs> statement. You know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. Well, we have a plan when we go out there, but as quick as elk punches us in the nose, it's like, all right, time to pivot. But yeah. from pre-production to the end of production, we're always trying to think about that stuff. You know, how can we do the best we possibly can? Yeah. And yeah, there might be a time where it's like, uh, in retrospect, a year or two later, I wish we would have done that slightly differently, but we learn from it. And we're, I know there's, there's no lack of effort on our part to be as much beneficial and positive yeah. as we possibly can. But then there's the flip side of that, of how do you provide information and education without pissing off the people who think they're the gatekeepers or who should or shouldn't be allowed to be a hunter. Totally. And I think for me, the, the bottom line there and the, the real deep foundation of that is why are you providing that information? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's not because I want to be known as an expert. It's not because I want attention or any of that. It's because I want people to succeed. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then you look at it and it's like, well, why would you want people to succeed? The more people that succeed as elk hunters, the less elk there are and the less opportunity there is. And that goes back to that, what do you call it, minimalist thinking or mm -hmm. yeah. whatever. Well, scarcity. Scarcity. Abundance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that for me is my whole motivation for educating people on elk hunting, for sharing my passion for elk hunting is summed up in one sentence that Will Primo said. And he said, if you teach someone to love something, they're going to protect it. Mm -hmm. And that is my whole motivation for everything that we do is I want people to be passionate elk hunters because I know that if there's passionate elk hunters, they're going to protect it. Yes, yeah, so yep. that means there's going to be more elk hunters in the mountains. Mm -hmm. That means that the trailhead's going to be more crowded. I understand that. I deal with it too. Mm -hmm. You know, we hunt the same public land trailheads as everybody else and we see it and we get frustrated. That means we have to hunt harder and be better if we want to be successful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know that that whole pack trailhead is going to show up and be passionate when somebody says, hey, the antis don't think that, that hunters need to manage elk anymore. They think that the wolves can do a good job. Mm -hmm. We've got people who are passionate about it, recognize the value of management and hunting as a management tool to make sure that we're conserving elk and that there's going to be elk here to hunt, not just elk here, but elk here to hunt two generations, three generations from now. Yeah, That's my entire motivation for everything that we do. Yep. I, someone taught me along the way. I taught myself through a lot of mistakes also, but I got taught a lot. Yeah. And I may not want to, I, I want to admit that I got taught a lot by, by a lot of people who went out of their way to make, they wanted me to be successful. And I just tell people, you know, if you don't like the fact that I, we provide information, then change your channel. Yeah. And, and they're like, well, that still affects me. Well, I don't know what to tell you because as long as my wife lets me do this, as long as my liver doesn't give out or I don't get eaten by a grizzly bear, this is what I get up to do every day. Yep. And I... I, I <laughs> so, inst so instead of... I, I think that's... And I look at it. I, look, I try to look at it from their standpoint, and I understand it mm -hmm. like I do. Like mm -hmm. it, I, I absolutely get it. Hey, Corey and Randy are putting more elk hunters in the field. 
Okay, it's not fair. I, I want that mountain to myself. I've had it to myself for the last 10 years. Now there's out-of-state trucks there. Mm -hmm. It's like, listen, every state, with the exception of Colorado, limits how many non-residents can hunt in that state. Right. So the number of non-resident hunters is not going up. Right. They are finding different areas. Mm -hmm. There are tools out there that help them. Randy and I share information to help them utilize those tools right. to find their own areas. And that might be your area that you hunt. And I understand mm -hmm. that's not cool. Yeah. So yeah. what do we do about it? Right. Well, you know, calling Randy a sellout, calling Corey, you know, a, a ruiner of elk hunting isn't solving a problem there. We're giving mm -hmm. avenues to solve these problems too. Yeah. You know, what are you doing to open access? What right. are you doing to... Put more elk on the ground, on the mountain. You yeah. know, if you don't want people from Michigan coming to Colorado hunting, what are you doing to get more elk in Michigan? You yeah. know, there, there are organizations that are doing that. Are you supporting those organizations? So it just goes back to your scarcity versus abundance. Yeah. Are you trying to limit other people so that you have more? Or are you trying to create more so that you have more? Yeah. Right. That's my approach to it. And anyone who is paying attention to what's going on in Washington right now, and Colorado this is going to have to be a podcast that we get into that, Corey. But, uh, you know, just this week, the Washington Fishing Game Committee Commission met, and they now have this, the governor stack the deck. Six of the nine are either avowed anti-hunters or avowed opponents to the North American model yeah. of how we've always managed wildlife in this country. And they have put forth their proposal now. It was presented this week that hunting should no longer be one of the primary management tools. If that doesn't get your attention, folks, I don't yeah. know what does. And if you think it's helpful that just 20 guys in Washington are having to fight that fight, no. They need all the help they can get. Yeah. Would you rather see four more people at the trailhead that you know are going to show up and fight that fight, or you want to stand there by yourself and fight the fight and be at the trailhead? Yeah. Because you're not going to have a bow in hand chasing elk if that for too much continues. Yeah. yeah. And then now Colorado, they just had their big thing about quote unquote mutualism, uh, which I call it exclusivism. In other words, let's exclude the idea that humans are part of this landscape yeah. like we have been forever. You know, their governor uh, just appointed three new commission members. Uh, one is an attorney that teaches animal rights at the University of Denver. Uh, one is a person who uh, promotes, uh, I guess uh, I, their, their term is non-harmful uh, nuisance, wildlife nuisance <laughs> management. <laughs> And then turning uh, the rabid raccoon back loose into the yeah, forest. Yeah. And so I've been talking to a lot of the Colorado guys. I'm like, where is this coming from? I view Colorado as like this hunting state, fanatic yeah. hunters. And they're like, well, the governors, uh, I, I'm, I don't know what the right term is here, but husband. Uh, so the first gentleman, I guess you call it, uh, is an avowed animal rights person. And so he has the ear of the governor and the governor is like, okay, yeah. yeah. So it, it, what it brings forth is using Colorado as the example, an unelected official, the governor's husband is not elected, not appointed, not anything. And they've figured out how to use our current 
governance structures to implement their end goals. Yep. And uh, I, I, I got to be careful because I, I really get off the rails on this stuff, and I'm, I try to stay calm about it. Uh, so I've channeled that energy in a different way that Andrew McKeon from Outdoor Life and I, I'm going up to Glasgow. Uh, where he lives here in Montana in a, in a week, and we're going to spend two days. We've already scripted four episodes about this. And uh, I know this sounds alarmist, but this is not just a couple of ragtag people trying to do this. Yeah, This is well-funded. This is groups that have been trying to do this around the edges for a long time, and now they've all united in their own front. And they're picking off, okay, what states? We got Washington. We have a favorable governor there. We got Colorado. We have a favorable governor there. They're looking at all the other states, Oregon, California, New Mexico. So they're coming out here to where people think of the West as, okay, you know, that's like. We're conservative. Yeah. You know, values, hunting is a part of life. It's, yeah. And if this doesn't have you concerned as a hunter, I hope I can somehow wake you up. Yep. Because if we allow them to come and grab the mantle and say the North American model, the idea that humans are part of the equation like we have been, well, on North America, they say we've been here for at least 20,000, 10,000 years, maybe 20,000. If they take the mantle and they are allowed to do, use this, and that's why I call it exclusivism, rather than mutualism that yeah. they call it. It's exclusive of people. It, it's a mindset. It's a thinking. It's a, and maybe you could call it a religion or a spirituality. Uh, this is my view of how the relationship should be with wild things. And I'm going to impose my view on you. Yep. And that's happening. And Watching the Washington Commission meeting this week was painful, so painful, because here's the same 20, 30 volunteers showing up representing these, you know, grassroots Washington hunting angling groups. And then here comes the slick paid employee, attorneys, PR people from these groups. And you could tell it's been orchestrated. It's been rehearsed. They've been meeting with these commissioners before the meeting. It's like, we better wake up, folks. Yep. You know, All it takes is one election yeah. to ruin everything that's been going on for the last 200 years. Right. One election. Yeah. And we need to be thinking about how are they going to take the established form of governance we have of our commissions? Because we've let the politicians yeah. really start having their hands in it. And some people would say, well, that's good in a state where people think like us. Yeah. Okay, it is. But it's not in, in states where people don't think well, like us. Well, so, you look at Washington. Mm -hmm. Aside from a couple cities on the left coast, mm -hmm. they're conservative-minded. They're hunting. Right. They're, they're hard workers. They're farmers. You know, they're outdoors people. They, they think like right. hunters. Right. Oregon's the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole two-thirds of Eastern Oregon, yeah, put it to a vote, it's going to go. But you've got these little places along the coast there that will dictate the political right. 
atmosphere there. I mean, it, it, it is. So you get a governor that's elected for the entire state that doesn't see hunting as an important thing, and they appoint commission who is overseeing and bringing recommendations to them. It doesn't matter what the fish and game biologists exactly. and all of them are saying. They come to them and say, we have to do this to manage these, the, the numbers, you know, the disease, whatever. They're going to look at it and be like, yeah, we don't agree with that. We, we right. think that nature needs to manage nature. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going back and we're voting on. Yeah. And then it passes. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that 90% of the state thinks that hunting is okay. It's those seven people or nine people on a commission that make the decision. Right. And so I look at that and say, okay, that's a reality we're dealing with. And I don't see that political spectrum changing in those places. So how do we grab the initiative and make sure that the governance structures and the way things are, are, are happen? can't be manipulated this way because we've always went kind of on the basis that, you know, a governor's going to appoint people there. There's guidelines, you know, we, they should have a background in this. They should yeah. have an interest in that and represent this stakeholder, or that stakeholder. These groups are like, we, we, we aren't paying it. Yeah. So we're going to have to figure that out because if we don't, and then the traditional North American model of what we've benefited from for the last hundred years is junk, which these groups want to do. And that's yep. what the proposal is that was a, you could tell in Washington, that's the direction they're going. Even in spite of their biologists and their leadership in the department saying, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, you can see where they're going. Yep. So that better be a lesson to every other hunter, angler, trapper. State. Con- <laughs> yes, in the other 49 states. I think uh, earlier this year when we had the re-grand opening at the... At RMEF. At the RMEF headquarters. Yeah. You had talked about something, and what I got out of it was instead of complaining with your voice complain with your vote yeah and there's a lot of people complaining with their voice that are not voting one way or the other and not only that you look at i mean using oregon as an example portland dictates Hmm? i mean that's that's just the reality right so you can have you can look and you can say geographically 95 percent of the state is going to agree with hunting Mm -hmm. they're going to agree with the north american model but You've got a governor in Portland who appoints seven, nine commissioners, whatever, that they know from Portland that are same ideals as them. It doesn't matter if that 90% of the people vote for anything other than the governor. They're going to get outvoted because of the the sheer population in that one area that, you know, they're going to vote for this governor. Because hunting, whether they agree with it or disagree with it, it's not important to them. Right, And so they aren't thinking about hunting. They're thinking about other issues that are bigger to them. And, and they're bigger issues for us too. But right. hunting is important and we can't allow politics to keep bleeding into hunting. And yep. so for states like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, we can't sit back and wait to elect a governor that changes everything mm-hmm. for us. We have to do something to establish a platform and a system that no matter what, our state is protected to be able to govern based on biology, not on politics. Yeah. 
And if you live in Montana, Idaho, Idaho or Wyoming, you should be paying attention to this because where do you think those displaced hunters from Washington are coming? Totally. They're coming to be residents here. Yeah, and it's not just non-residents now. It's not, you know, everybody's saying, oh, I see Washington plates at the trailhead all the time. Well, those people are probably looking for land while they're over there hunting, mm-hmm. and they're going to have Idaho plates next year, and there's right. going to be a whole bunch of them. So yeah. don't worry whether they're non-resident or resident. Yeah. Think about how many people are going to be filling the woods. We've got to protect what we've got. Other states have to protect what they have, yeah. and we have to find a way to make the pie bigger because no matter how we like it, the slices yeah. are getting thinner. Yeah. Whether it's because of Randy and I, whether it's because of a worldwide pandemic, whether it's because of political issues in states that mm-hmm. have hunting now that won't have it in five years, whoever you want to blame it on, find a solution. Yeah. Don't worry about who gets the blame. Yeah. And so people are probably saying, well, what is that solution? Yeah. That solution is multiple. One, get a hold of your elected people, whether you voted for them or didn't vote for them. Yep. They're be your there. representative now. Yes. Be there in, in their mind. Make sure they have heard from you, from your county commissioner up to your state legislator to your congressional delegation. Ask them what we can do so that this doesn't happen. Because for the most part, most of the states, you're going to have somebody that is going to support your ideal for hunting Mm -hmm. and the management and the North American model for conservation and, and wild animals. You're going to be able to get their ear. And be able to say, listen, look what's happening in Washington. How do we prevent that from happening in Idaho? Mm -hmm. What can I as a citizen do? What can you as my representative do so that we don't have to worry about this? If somebody gets elected that that doesn't support hunting, they could ruin hunting in our state in a matter of two or three years. What can we do so that that doesn't happen? Yeah. So be talking to those people. We also have groups that the more they hear about this from their membership— the higher it gets up their priority list. Yep. Because every group has 20 different issues that they're being tasked with. And they have limited resources. So they're like, okay, we got to allocate our scarce resources to the highest priority according to our membership. Well, how do you move that up? The membership or, or the priority list? The membership speaks up. Yep. So whatever group it is, one, belong to as many groups as you can afford to. And... Don't worry that, well, maybe one time this group supported lighted knocks and I didn't like lighted knock. Yeah. You know, hunters are really good at finding reasons to not. To divide. Yeah, exactly. If we're going to sit here and fight about lighted knocks or trail cameras or whatever it is, the other side is laughing. Yeah. Because while they're burning down our house, we're over here picking the, the dandelions out of the front yard. Of our neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yelling because you missed a dandelion over there. It, it, I, I mean, I know that sounds like kind of a, a, a hyperbolic statement, but... <laughs> it's the truth. Anyhow, I don't know how we got on Man. that topic. I, but well, I'm, I am not going to let it rest. It is too important. Yeah. To, and it, people might say, oh, that's just in Washington right now. Trust me, they're trying to do the same thing in every Western state. In Colorado, it is well underway. In New Mexico, it's well underway. And you can bet every urbanized Western state is going to see this same effort. Yep. So, yeah. You guys got to go give a seminar. Yeah. Donnie, you, you, what, what's your role in this? 
Moral support. Moral support, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I got a button in the other room there. When you hit it, it's a bull beep. <laughs> bull beep. It's a, we call it the BS button. So maybe you should take it to the seminar. Oh, and don't do that. Hit it, and then it'll go Yeah. <laughs> My wife bought me that. She uh, like, I bet she did. Yeah, because I'll be watching the TV, and I'm like, ah, bulls. So she bought me a BS button. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> she Does she have her own? Uh, I It was the only one in the house, and I brought it to the office. I got tired. Because she was using it yeah, all the time? I got tired of her. Like, <laughs> that seems abusive. You're doing yeah. that too much. Yeah. She, uh, my wife would never swear, but she'll hit a button that has a little bit of a customer uh-huh. in there. <laughs> but, uh, well, thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate yeah. you being in town. Yeah. You should go scout for some of those 400-inch bull elk that are so plentiful I, around. I looked out the window of my hotel last night. I didn't see any, didn't so see I'm any. starting to wonder if the stories are true. Well, you just didn't look hard enough. Well, I, I could see mountains from where I was at, and I yeah. didn't see any 400-inch bulls. Huh. Well. I saw a lot of people. Be. They'll be here in archery season. There are people all over the streets in downtown isn't this, Bozeman. Isn't this place like an anthill anymore? I thought there was like a parade going on. It literally That's, packed on the sidewalks both is. sides as far as you could see. And it is every day in the summer. That's crazy. Season. Everybody's walking around with their Yellowstone t-shirt on, you know, whatever that movie is or series is. And, <laughs> uh, every dude is walking around trying to be Kevin Costner. It's you like, know what? I saw a group of people. There must have been 20 of them. All the guys had on cowboy hats, mm-hmm. but that was the only thing Western about. Like, yeah. I'm looking at them going, those cowboy hats just don't fit. Why are they wearing cowboy hats? Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. It hey. is, no, it's the number of people who come here looking for what is it the dutton rant the, yep. they, they're like they think this is real and this some one of the, and i can't remember is one of the universities or one of the state agencies did us some study of polling people with tourism and stuff they figure that that series yellowstone just in the first whatever three or four seasons has brought just under a billion dollars of tourism interest Wow. to this part of Montana. How do you capitalize on that? You need to start like a Yellowstone ranch where people I, can come and live go. that life for a weekend or something. Something. Yeah, yeah. I guess we got to have some, fa- I guess they murder a lot of people in that show is what I hear. I don't know. Someone told me it's it. like the Godfather meets Bonanza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Is that, so I don't know, maybe we got to have some fake murders or something go on there. I don't know. Yeah, it's busy here, Corey. I, That's, uh, I was surprised. I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm irritated. Yeah, because I got to deal with it every day. <laughs> so that that that's my plug for the Montana Tourism Agency. There you there. go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you come to Bozeman, bring your own rock because you're going to need one to stand on when you're here. So <laughs> and uh, bring your own cowboy hat. Oh yeah, you got to have one to fit in. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny when you see that guys walk. You can tell they're like is. Oh, these were, they did not fit underneath a cowboy hat, and you could tell they had just bought them. They were just brand new looking and stiff, and it's like, that just looks awkward. But man, they were sure, they were strutting right down the sidewalk like they belonged in a cowboy hat, and they were in Bozeman, Montana to prove it. Yep. Looking for Kevin Costner. (laughs) Yep. Oh, I don't know how we got on that. That has nothing to do with yeah, I don't know how we get on so. anything. We just sit around and talk. And oh, oh, we're, that's why there are no 400-inch bull elk this week. They show up in archery season. Though. Oh, 
Gotcha. Everyone that got away is pushing 400 inches. There you go. So, yep. Only here in Southwest Montana. Only. Yep. But, well, guys, have fun at your thing. I'll go there and do your introduction. I got. Well, I appreciate I, it. I gotta come up with some. I want to bring your button so that yeah. if you're giving me the introduction, I can make sure and keep people <laughs> honest. Uh, well, thanks for being here, folks. Really appreciate it. Hope you're getting ready for hunting season. Yep. It's, we'll catch uh, you next time. It's a. Uh, it'll be a hunting season after this episode. So. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that we got a big story to tell. We'll Good have luck. big stories off for All sure. Right. All Good right. luck out there. Yeah. Yeah. Donnie, say, say you got a, a dad joke to leave oh, him with? Oh, my or? gosh. No? This always comes down like to the last minute of everything. And then, yeah. hey, you got a dad joke? <laughs> yeah. Or you want to give us one for next time? I don't, I don't have one, but I did. Um, since you're talking about all the strange people in town, we stopped at the gas station on the way. There's an ATM outside, and there's a guy standing there on one foot, and he's got his head all cocked one way, the other way, and I went over and everything okay? And he says, oh, I'm just checking my balance. <laughs> there we go. Oh, Donnie pulls through just when we needed him. Yeah, I saw him working on his phone before we started. He knew it was coming. He's, anytime he sits down with me, he pulls out his phone. He's like, I better have a dad joke. Uh, well, hopefully people are checking their balance. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be decreased here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks so much, folks.